Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I stay up later than most people, so I was still awake playing computer games when the crash happened. Tires screeched before I heard a tremendous crunching of metal. I thought it was just a simple car accident outside until an emerald spray of light flared out from the street and throughout the neighborhood before me. And when I say that, I mean through the neighborhood. Beyond my computer monitor was the wall of my room. Beyond that, I saw illuminated impossibly my neighbors in their beds at the end of the block. It was only for an instant, for the blast of green lights swept at me at high speed, but I saw the rooms and objects and people in each house, split second by split second, as if someone had x-rayed entire homes and posted the shots on my bedroom wall. I had just enough time to look to my left in horror at the unseen source of the extra-dimensional light. Like a strobe on a concert stage, it flashed brightness and pain, reaching a peak just as I stared at it. For an instant, I saw the inside of my own eyeballs, and somehow, the bones in my face. I saw the front of my own skull from the inside out. And then I projectile vomited. My next memory was waking up in the morning with a dirty rag in my head. I'd mostly cleaned up the vomit and then... What? Passed out? I finished cleaning and then took a shower while fighting a massive headache. I could still feel the green flash in my eyes and in my head, but the experience felt dreamlike. How could I possibly have seen into other houses? My roommates had gone to work already, which meant they hadn't been feeling sick. There was no way I could go in, and I would be late even if I left immediately. At least this time, I wouldn't have to fake the misery in my voice. My boss answered. Hello? I I can't come in today, I told her. I'm feeling terrible. She didn't reply. About 15 seconds later, she hung up. That was weird, but I didn't have the presence of mind to worry about that this instant. I took a few painkillers and sat drinking water in the kitchen until something occurred to me. Wandering out onto the street under a cloudy sky, I tried to pin down the location of the light I'd seen. It rotated out like a beam of a lighthouse. Even though it had swung by at a blazing speed, I had a general sense of the direction it had come from. Finding the right angle, I studied the pavement. Several sets of tire tracks seemed to indicate that something had happened there. At least three or four trucks had swerved or stopped suddenly. In the center of these tracks, there was a small scorch mark, as if something had burned outward from above and lightly seared the road. The gray sky was beginning to release a light drizzle, and I could see the black beginning to wash away. You'll catch a cold, dear. I turned. 
It was the old lady across the street, and she was waving at me from her porch. Hi, Miss Harwell. It's raining, she called again. Thanks, Miss Harwell, I repeated loudly. She went back inside only after she saw me reach my front door. She always meant well, even if her concerns were a little old-fashioned. I waited behind the window until she went back inside, and then I went out to my car. I needed coffee, something fierce, and our house supply was gone. The drive through at the nearby Starbucks was overflowing, so I decided to go inside for the first time in years. I didn't remember the customers being so pushy. Even while in line, people kept bumping into me and trying to cut ahead. It only stopped when I raised my voice and insisted they respect the line. By the time I reached the front, I was already pretty worked up. And then the barista asked the person behind me what they wanted to order. I turned and looked back in disbelief, but the asshole behind me just said, Mocha Frappuccino, please. Looking the barista in the eyes, I put my hand on the counter. Are you kidding me? He blinked. Oh, sorry, I, I didn't see you there. What can I get for you? <laughs> didn't see me there? I glared, but I told him, Venti Black Coffee. He went to tap the order into the system, but then paused, as if he'd forgotten what he was doing. With more anger than I intended, I said again, Venti Black Coffee. He stiffened. Right, right. In a huff, I moved to the side area and waited. A minute passed, then two. The mocha frappuccino guy got his drink and left. Leaning over the counter, I asked, Aren't you supposed to shoot for three-minute times? The barista making drinks at the espresso bar looked my way briefly, then back to her work. I stood there for another ten minutes as customers came and went. Finally, I'd had enough. Hey, hello? I've been waiting on a venti black coffee for 15 minutes. The girl making drinks finally seemed to notice me. Oh, sorry. She moved over to the carafress and grabbed a venti cup before coming to a confused stop. What was I doing? For the first time in my life, I shouted in a Starbucks. Venti black coffee! That got their attention, but not the kind I liked. Stern glare suddenly focused on me, and the guy I'd ordered from said, Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to leave if you don't calm down. <sighs> Sorry. I stepped away, visually backing down. Sorry. The girl slid my coffee across the counter and went back to work. All the customers in line watched me with disgust or fear as they grabbed my drink and hurried out. As I hit the sidewalk, a guy bumped into me hard, and my coffee fell on the ground and splattered. Seriously? But he hadn't even so much as hesitated. He joined the back of the line inside and stood, looking up at the menus as if nothing happened. Was everyone out today a total jerk? I drove around to the drive-thru and waited in line for 20 minutes, only to have the barista on the speaker ignore me. I rolled up to the window, but they never opened it to talk to me. Extremely angry, I drove off and decided to go to the grocery store instead. But, after getting a bag of ground coffee beans and waiting in line, the clerk began ringing up the person behind me. In front of everyone, 
I demanded. Hello? Both the clerk and the customer continued exchanging pleasantries when items were being scanned. Customer paid and bumped right into me as she moved past. I stood staring as the clerk began ringing up the next lady. No longer angry, it occurred to me that something was going on, and there was no way that this was a conspiracy or a prank show. It involved too many people in too many different locations, and even... (laughs) No. Even my boss. When I'd called in sick, she'd hung up after a few seconds, as if listening and hearing nobody on the other end. (sighs) I don't know how or why or in what manner, but I couldn't deny it. I was invisible. I could see my hands, body, and legs, and people could see me if they actually looked, but they seemed to be having a great difficulty noticing I existed. On that weird hunch, I started backing away from the checkout, coffee bag in hand. Paying seemed foolish when nobody could notice me, and it wasn't like I hadn't tried to pay. The security guard near the door perked up and grabbed my arm. Sir, did you pay for that? Shit. I I did, yeah. I don't think so. He raised his radio from his belt to call someone. Wait, I told him half panicked. This had never happened to me before. I've got a receipt here, look. I reached down to the pocket and he let go of me. I threw the coffee back up to distract him. He fumbled at it and caught it as I ran out into the dizzily gray afternoon. He didn't follow. What the hell was going on? So I wasn't invisible. At least not in the sense that I could get away with crimes. Thing was, the security guard hadn't been nearby when I'd been to the checkout line. I had the strangest feeling that he would have stopped me even if I had paid. My headache was coming back and I still hadn't gotten any coffee. Defeated, I drove home and sat in my car in the rain trying to figure out what to do. After about 15 minutes of searching the internet on my phone for any discussions about something like this happening to someone else, my roommates pulled up behind me. I got out, caught up to them, and they were halfway across the lawn. Lucas grabbed me by both shoulders with amazed relief. You can see us? But my reaction did not match his. It's happening to you guys too? Simon wiped rain from his face. Everyone at work got weirder and weirder as the day went on. We couldn't do our jobs because customers were ignoring us. By the time we left, nobody even noticed. It was a strange and terrifying thing to consider as we stood there under gray skies being rained on, but I felt slightly better knowing I wasn't going through it alone. Let's go inside. We retreated to the kitchen where we dried off, put a pizza in the oven, and tried to figure out the parameters of what was happening to us. Calls to our friends and families were answered, but the people we reached didn't seem to be able to hear us. My heart seized in my chest as I had to sit and listen to my mother asking, Hello? Hello? She seemed vaguely aware that my number had been the one to call her, and her voice grew strained and terrified whenever I spoke. At some level, I was certain she knew what was happening, even though she couldn't consciously register the thought. But nobody else seemed to have that intuition. We were cut off. 
The oven dinged, singling that the pizza was ready, and I pulled it out and cut it into slices. Halfway through the process, I froze. Guys, Lucas and Simon had been arguing about the green light I told them about, but they both stopped immediately at the urgency in my voice and looked at me. I couldn't buy coffee today, I said, still staring down at the pizza cutter in my hand. My first attempt was really difficult, and then after that, I couldn't even buy it from the grocery store. What if we can't buy food? Simon gave me a half-humored, half-petubered laugh. (laughs) What do you mean, if we can't buy food? Like, what if we literally can't buy food? I replied aloud, my gaze rising to our cupboards. I began to open them and mentally catalog our meager collection of random boxes. We had some rice, a few cans of tuna, a can of beans. The cashier literally wouldn't ring out my stuff. We'll just use the automatic checkout, Lucas suggested. Shook my head. Security guard stopped me, thinking I'd stolen the coffee. I have a feeling we'll get the same response from any grocery store. Even if we pay, they might stop us and take the food back. A haunted expression passed over Simon's face. And even if we do pay, we can't do our jobs anymore. We won't have any money. Maybe it's temporary, Lucas countered. Maybe it'll wear off tomorrow, or in a week or something. I opened the fridge and freezer. What if it doesn't? We've got two frozen pizzas in here and a few scattered leftovers. We could literally starve right here in our house. (laughs) No, screw that. We'll ration it. Lucas got up, grabbed a pad, paper, and officially recorded what we had. Half a box of rice, four cans of tuna, a can of black beans, two frozen pizzas, and some meats and pastas we have to eat first. He put the list on the kitchen table and stared down at it. It's 9,000 calories total, if we're being generous. He got out his phone. Say here, a 20-something man needs around 2,500 a day. But we can survive on 1,000, maybe a little less if we're disciplined. So for the three of us... Simon cut him off with a horrified whisper. That's only three days of food. Maybe we can steal some, I suggested. You know, walk out with it from the store. Lucas knew the truth. If we get caught and go to jail, even just basic local lockup, we will absolutely die in there. We'll be trapped in a cage and forgotten about immediately. That was it. There were no options. How was it that a modern human household had only a few days of food in it? How was it possible that we were facing possible starvation in a country so well off? At first day, we didn't believe the nightmare. We went out and visited five grocery stores in succession. No matter what we did, no matter whether we paid or used the self-checkout or even ring up the groceries ourselves, security guards and employees and sometimes even other customers chased us down until we gave the food back. There was something manic and hostile about their attitude towards us, as if we were less than human somehow, and we came away with more than a few bruises for our trouble. There was no telling what actual police would do to us so we were forced to give up our attempts and return home hungry. This'll pass, Lucas insisted. We'll sleep tonight, we'll wake up, this will all be over. That night, 
I lay in bed and stared at the ceiling. Sleep? (laughs) Ridiculous. We were in mortal danger, and every passing moment meant 90 less seconds for us to find a way to survive. But that was the thing. We weren't in immediate danger yet. The mechanisms of society were still real to us, and we were still civilized young men. Stick together. That's what Lucas has said. If we stuck together, we'd be fine. (laughs) Sure. I didn't sleep. I spent the night researching local companies, but found nothing. A group of vehicles had been transporting something down our street, that something had ruptured and sprayed us with otherworldly emerald light, and that light had phased us out of the human social conscious. Who or what could possibly do something like that? As dawn spiked into my eyes through my open window, lifting up my eyeballs with internal after-images, my perpetual headache dimmed slightly. That morning, bleary-eyed and haggard, we split a pizza. It was delicious, because it was all we got for the rest of the day. During the night, Simon had gathered a list of hundreds of phone numbers of people and organizations that might help us, and he spent that day calling them one by one. Lucas spent the day driving to every single grocery store, restaurant, and market in the area that might possibly have food. I spent my hours... Simply thinking, thinking of a solution, a way out, anything. I wanted to conserve my calories by moving as little as possible. But I couldn't even do that. When Lucas ran out of gas, he found that gas station clerks were denying his cash and pumps weren't reading his credit card. It was as if he told me over the phone the machine didn't even know he'd put his card in the slot. The pumps hadn't given the error message... They'd just done nothing. Whatever had happened to us, it was getting worse. I picked up and then parked my car in the driveway. I had a quarter tank of gas left, and it was apparent that meager amount would be all the gas we would ever have. That night, we didn't go off into our separate rooms. We sat playing a board game until exhaustion finally found us one by one. I was the last one left as Simon and Lucas lay sprawled across the game pieces. I wondered if I would eventually end up seeing them like that again, not because of sleep, but because of death. What would I do if it came to that? I awoke the next morning with that question still unanswered. A funny thing happens when you run out of things to do. You don't have a job. Nobody will talk to you, and when you've done everything you possibly can, called everyone, tried every opportunity, gone around every corner, you can't think about anything but survival. But there are no thoughts of survival left to think, so you think about nothing at all. We ate the last of our food and sat playing board games. And we did that the next day. And the next day. It was our house. Our chairs, our carpets, our beds, our walls, our fridge, our backyard. It just didn't have any food in it. You can't eat chairs or beds. And you know what? Hunger isn't that bad, really. The thing that slowly drives you crazy is how relentless it is. 
You don't get to just sit there and play a board game. Every second that it's not your turn and you're just sitting there, all you are is pain. A weekend, Simon picked up our board and threw the game on the ground. There's gotta be like a fucking apple tree somewhere. Lucas didn't take his eyes off the game piece in his hand. It's the end of October. Nothing's got fruit right now. There's no food to be had. At least not within the range of a quarter tank of gas. We're surrounded by food. It's just locked up behind the walls of all the grocery stores. Simon's eyes were wild. We should just kill them and take it. Lucas sneered. <laughs> and then what? Get gunned down by the cops? They've got no problem noticing us when we act up. I'd been thinking about calling my mom again, if only to listen to her voice, but my calls had just been giving her repeated terror and confusion. Something in me had snapped. Even if we did find a way to survive, our bills would eventually come due when the power and the water would go out. New renters might even move into our house and completely ignore us while we sat next to them dying. Simon's not wrong, but forget grocery stores. Let's just break into people's houses while they're at work. Much less chance of getting caught. We wore hats and tied handkerchiefs over our mouths to hide our faces. We didn't want to go too far since we'd have to carry what we stole, and we didn't want to get too close for fear of being caught, so we chose the house at the end of the block. At ten in the morning, we snuck through backyards and hit the garage side door handle with a hammer. It was eerie, being in someone else's house like that. There were photos and knickknacks everywhere of lives we knew nothing about. Someone had left socks on the living room floor. Worst of all, I knew the layout of the place already. I'd seen it before. As we snuck into the kitchen of the house at the end of the block, I knew for certain that the green flash had truly illuminated this place. It hadn't been a nightmare. I'd physically seen rooms and people a block away through a dozen walls. Lucas quietly opened up a cupboard and looked over at us in dismay. It was empty. Simon went to the fridge and found nothing inside but a plastic Tupperware container. I looked at the photos on the counter. How could a family with four kids have no food in their home? Lucas froze. Unless it's happened to them too. Simon got what he meant at the same time I did. They could literally be here. Right now. Scanning the kitchen and living room in fear, I wondered if I was looking right past my neighbors. We were definitely threats. Could they see us? Were they standing in the terror in the corner? If one decided to leap forward and attack us, we would never see it coming. We ran. Taking refuge back in our own house, we frantically searched the news and the internet. Yep. There it was. Hundreds of homes all across the area have been finding their food stolen to the point that police were on high alert and the city was promoting home security and defense. Jesus Christ, Lucas murmured. 
That green light didn't just flash us. It had been happening through the entire neighborhood, maybe more. Simon slumped on our couch. Which means dozens of families have already been out there looting and stealing ahead of us. We'll never get away with it now. I was laughing, and I didn't know why. I couldn't help it. It was like the world had it in for us. Or not even the world, really. Just society. Other people. Every single avenue was being closed off one by one, either by us, by society, or by others trapped in the same situation. I was laughing at the absurd mechanical perfection of it all. Civilization was circling around like a clock to trap us and starve us. If we stay here, we're doomed, I laughed. No, not laughing. Crying. Let's just drive. We'll just go in any direction and we'll drive until we're out of here. We've only got a quarter tank, Lucas shot back. We can't exactly rob houses without a place to hide to eat and sleep. Worse, if we get stuck just a few miles out, we'll literally die. We don't have hours of walking left in us, let alone days. There's nowhere to go. My crying laughter had infected Simon. How can there be nowhere to go? We're literally surrounded by homes. We're in a sea of houses and food. Everyone's fucking fat and dying early because of it, and here we are, starving amongst them. His grin widened beyond manic, and his laughter became visibly painful as it racked his weakened body. How can this be happening? Lucas stood above him and shook him against the couch. Get your shit together. We're way past screwed, and going crazy isn't going to help. He stepped back and let us both calm down. It's time to make decisions while we still have our heads about us. I no longer felt like laughing or crying. There was just... Nothing. Decisions? Like what? Lucas looked us both dead in the eyes in turn. We're not going to kill any people. At first I thought he was kidding, but then I realized that I really might come to that. Our reality included that possibility because we'd just get hunted down and arrested and die anyway. He nodded. Simon just stared at the floor, and we sat in roughly those positions as time slipped away from us. We still trying to play board games. At times, the hunger even left us. In our third week, inanition truly set in, and I noticed myself getting thinner. We made some jokes about finally going on a diet, but we had little humor to spare, and we began spending more time silent than not. By week five, Lucas had a timer on his phone to remind us to drink water, because he'd noticed we weren't getting thirsty anymore. All of our movements became painful, and we stopped playing games that required reaching over the board to place pieces. Eventually, we stopped playing games altogether and simply lay there in silence. There was nothing to do but wait and hope that something would change. There was nobody to call, no access to food, and no way to get it even if there was. Darkness and light, night and day, became a whirling cycle of nothingness without thought or interruption. Our last real conversation was unprompted. Simon rasped. 
I'm glad I don't have to go through this alone. You guys are my best friends. He shivered under his blanket. I love you guys. Love you too, man. Lucas whispered back as best he could. They waited for me. It took me a minute to work up the saliva to speak, but I told them. It's been a good year. I couldn't see them from where I was lying, but I could feel them smiling. On the first night of our seventh week without food, I texted my mom just to take comfort in the notification that it had been read. I knew she couldn't understand the words, and I knew it would just cause her confused distress, but I just wanted to feel like I existed. That brief boon of awareness allowed me to lift my head up and look over at Simon. He'd rotted away while still alive, but now I could see a dryness to his skin. My heart sank. Lucas, I think Simon's dead. His only response was a sigh. No. No. I would not go out like that. We're not going to die in here, I told him. Using all the strength of my frail limbs to force my body from the floor, I moved to help him, but I stopped after a single step. Lucas had not sighed. Air had merely escaped his bloated body. He'd been dead for days. I'd been lying in a room with two corpses. There was still a quarter tank of gas in my car. I had no idea how far it would take me or where I might end up, but I had to try. The front door took me ten minutes to reach, and my car in the driveway looked to be miles away. Worse, it was drizzling, and the cold sliced through my body like hundreds of knives. I swayed with each step as my leg muscles begged to give out, but I refused. Inch by inch, I worked my way along to my front porch and onto the walkway that curved toward my car. Oh, you'll catch a cold! Holding my arms tighter around my body for warmth, I looked out in confusion. Mrs. Harwell was on her porch, waving at me. It's raining! What? Weakly, I called. You can see me? She waved again. It's raining, dear. Shouldn't you go inside? I was saved. It was incredible. How could she notice me? But a voice behind me replied. Thanks, Mrs. Harwell. Will do. I looked back to see a guy my age entering my house. He put down his backpack and went into the kitchen. He lived there. He lived in my house. And he never noticed us dying in the living room. She hadn't seen me at all. She'd seen him. It wasn't my car in the driveway. It just looked like it. They towed mine out at some unknown point. It was nowhere to be seen. I fell onto the lawn then, 
Without an ounce of willpower or hope left, there was nothing I could do. No resources, no friends, no family, no job, no home, nothing. All I could do was lay there and die. The sky rotated around me, going from gray clouds to clear night to blue dawn until the morning sun glared into my eyeball from the side. Too weak to move, too weak to look away. I let it burn. And a curious thing happened. I began to feel better. Soft blue and bright orange burned through the reverse images of the veins in my eyes and I felt a wrenching sensation in the center of my head just behind the nose. For a brief instant, I saw the bones in my skull again, but losing a bright green hue, shifting backwards somehow, as if I was being pulled back into reality. The guy who lived there came back out to get something from his car and found me lying in the grass, half dead. He could see me. He could see me. A blur of painful motion followed, but I was vaguely aware of being taken to a hospital. I spent another several weeks there regaining my strength. Throughout, I watched the ongoing local crisis on the television in my room. To them, it was an inexplicable crime wave, combined with the reports of bodies popping up out of nowhere, even in people's homes. Whatever force that had pushed us out of social reality appeared to wear off a few weeks after death. At first, it was just adult corpses appearing in kitchens and bathrooms and bedrooms. But then they began to find children. I know that nobody will believe me, but I have to get the word out because nobody else can. There are people among us starving and dying every day, cut off from survival by the machine of civilization, always riding the edge of crime and desperation. You can't see them, but they're there, and they will eventually be found. We can do it while they're still alive, or we can wait and hope that the next corpse that phases back in doesn't pop up next to us on our bed or our couch while we're watching television, but it will happen, one way or another. You could be sitting next to an unseen, rotting corpse this very instant, or perhaps it's someone still alive but on the verge of starvation. The only difference is whether we can bring ourselves to notice the problem in time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last spring, I graduated high school. We weren't planning any big parties or anything, partly because of the whole germ thing, partly because we were never into big parties in the first place. When I say me, I mean me and my two best friends, Mia and Cooper. 
We weren't nerds, or if we were, we were the socially acceptable type of nerds that had a lot of friends at school and rarely got picked on. We went with the flow, and that did sometimes include us going to games or parties, though usually we target smaller hangouts with people we could tolerate for a few hours. Most of the time, though, it was just the three of us, and as we got closer and closer to graduation, our little circle of three seemed to involuntary contract more and more, almost like a clenching fist. Mia was going to college in Nevada, and I was staying here, and Cooper, well, he wasn't sure yet, but the odds of him staying in state for school were getting slim. There was an unspoken tension between the three of us. A secret dread that said, you better spend time together while you can, because come the fall, you'll be all alone. It was silly, of course. We could still talk and visit, and we'd make new friends to help keep us company while the three of us were apart. We all knew that rationally, but as time ran down, I became acutely aware of how large my fear of losing them was. How powerful. So we didn't go to parties, no. But we found excuses to do stuff all the time. Not just hang out, watch TV, play games and bullshit, but actually do activities. It had started right after Christmas, and by May we'd found an impressive variety of shit to do. Parks, state, national, and amusement. Fairs, both the cannery type and the medieval type. We'd gone camping, hiking, fishing, and swimming. There was a video of me rollerblading down a hill, though Mia missed when I wiped out at the bottom and photos of us petting goats at the world's smallest petting zoo, two counties over. It was literally just an old woman with three goats in her yard, but she'd posted an invitation on the internet to all visitors that were well-behaved and brought some food for her goats out of a voluminous list of things her babies would eat. There had even been a brief flirtation with trying to find a haunted house earlier in the spring, but they weren't as easy to find as movies lead you to believe, and... We were all more than a little nervous about getting caught trespassing at some abandoned house. Again, nerds maybe, but not unreasonably so. But then Mia brought up the idea of the clown car. She'd originally heard about it from her cousin, who'd heard about it... Well, you know how that goes. But then she spent some time digging on the internet and finally found some more info on it. Other people had played it before, and a couple of places there were some loose advice and rules for how it was played, because it was, at least to some extent, a game. When she first told us about it, we all just laughed, told her it'd be a lot less trouble to just go stand in the bathroom with the lights off and say Bloody Mary three times. We might be scraping the bottom of the barrel, but spooky games with weird, needlessly complex rules, it kind of seemed like a waste of time. It was always just people laughing or trying to scare each other, and when it was all done, you were left kind of disappointed, because, well, that's not how the world really works. You could see the hurt in her face. It had been there from the start, but me and Cooper were busy making jokes, so it took us a minute to catch on. She didn't suggest stuff often, and this was why. We were smartasses, and sometimes we got too rough with it. Cooper seemed to realize we'd pushed it too far just a couple of seconds before I did. Told her we were only kidding and it sounded cool. If we could figure out a good spot for it, we'd do it that weekend. As it turned out, that was the easy part, because there had been a pair of violent deaths just outside of town. 
In August of 82, John Sampson came home from a 12-hour shift at the quarry. He normally wouldn't have been driving his dump truck home, but the next morning he had an early special delivery to a subdivision being built 50 miles up the road, and it was quicker to have it ready than to get it all loaded the next day. Besides, he figured, no one was going to try and steal 40,000 pounds of sand and gravel parked in his driveway. When he got home, however, he found his driveway was already occupied. His brother, Bill Sampson, had come to visit John's wife while he was away. Story goes that he'd been visiting her regularly for some time, much to the delight of the neighborhood gossips. No one had thought to tell John about it, though, so when he walked in on them, it was apparently quite a shock. I say that not because I know exactly what happened in there or what he was thinking, but because of what he did next. Three days later, someone found them all in the middle of SR3, a service road for the gravel pits that hadn't seen much use since the late 70s. John had shot himself, but not before dropping off his final load. He'd apparently tied his wife and brother together, drugged them behind the truck, and unloaded all 20 tons on top of them while they were still alive. According to one quote from a local article, the rescue worker that found them said their mouths were filled with sand from screaming. The weird thing was, none of us heard that story before Mia dug it up on the internet. It had happened before we were born, sure, but in a small town like this, local horror stories didn't die from old age. Maybe it was kept more quiet because of the sexual components, or because the town was ashamed that they hadn't done more to head things off before it reached that point. Or maybe it hit itself, a story to be forgotten until it was needed again. Until some dumb kids wanted to play a game. The rules were simple enough. You get in a car and drive to the spot you've picked out. The spot needs to meet a certain criteria for this to work. As you've figured out, it needs to be a spot or near a spot where people died violently. It also needs to be on a road, and the road must be a dead end. At one time, SR3 had gone all the way up to the other side of the pits, but after the murders, they had started ripping the road up. If the company hadn't gone belly up the following year, it might have been gone long ago, but as it was, two-thirds of it was left, including the spot where John emptied his truck onto his wife and brother. So, check on the violent death spot. Double check on the dead-end road. The next thing is who went with you. This is kind of flexible depending on what kind of car you have. You can go by yourself or you can go with other people. The key is you have to leave at least one seat empty. Cooper had his mom's old Camry, so that was easy enough. I was in the back, Mia was in front of me, and Cooper drove us there. We went just after midnight. Mia had found conflicting accounts of if there was a specific time you had to do it, but generally they all overlapped between 1 and 3 a.m., so we figured we were safe if we got the ritual done in that time frame. Because yes, there's a ritual. Of course there's a ritual, right? Specific mysterious things you have to do to get more invested and make it all feel real. Specific mysterious things that could be misinterpreted or done slightly wrong without you knowing it, giving an easy excuse when nothing happened. Because it was your mistake, right? Not the fact that it was all made of bullshit. If this sounds like I was highly skeptical, it's because I was. I acted pumped for Mia's sake, but the more we got to it, the more I just wanted it to be over with. We had to find the road and then the murder spot on the road. 
This was actually the easy part. Mazmia had done the necessary research beforehand. But then, we had to make sure the car was pointed due north. We had to light four candles and put them at each of the cardinal directions, north, east, south, and west. We had to have three more candles, one for each of us to light and hold. And then, we had to roll down all the windows, holding our candle in one hand while we hung the other hand out of the window. Once all this was done, we would stare at our candle flames. This was apparently very important. We couldn't look away from our flame at any point, or we lost. We died? None of it was very clear, but it was definitely a bad thing. And as we looked at the fire, we would take turns saying the same phrase over and over. We invite you in. You could hear crickets on the air as we sat alone in the dark. I'd been convinced some of the candles would fall over or blow out, but so far, they all seemed steady despite the cool breeze that would sometimes rustle the trees and send a dry, dusty smell through the interior of the car. We'd never been on the road before, but driving up in the dark, we could see enough to make out the sharp drop-off on the right side of the road. The old pits were down there. I could picture a hundred-foot drop ending in dirt and rocks and muddy water, but the height wasn't what bothered me. It was the black void I could feel out there. A great absence that didn't feel natural or friendly. I didn't understand it. I wasn't afraid of the woods or the dark. At least not more than normal, but... This place didn't feel like normal woods at night. It felt... It felt like acid. Like everything was burning and poison, being eaten away and... I blinked. What the hell was wrong with me? There was nothing weird out here. If I felt like anything was burning, it was from the pollen or the smelling the candles. I needed to get my shit together. Quit letting this dumb game freak me out and just get through it. We ready to start? Mia turned around and looked at me. Oh, jeez, watch the candle. You trying to set my head on fire? She yanked it back from where she had brushed the side of Cooper's arm as she looked back. <laughs> Sorry, Coop. Turning back to me, she nodded her head. Her eyes were dark and wide in my candlelight, and when she returned my smile, I could tell she was as nervous as I felt. She glanced at my window. Uh, you need to put your other hand out, remember? Nodding, I stuck my arm out, letting my hand dangle limply against the side of the car. Like this? She nodded and turned back around in her seat. I think we're ready. We invite you in. We invite you in. We invite you in. Mia started, then me, then Cooper. We set it in a circle, over and over. Maybe five or six times, and then we sat silent, tense and waiting, hoping for both something and nothing to happen. I tried to keep my eyes on my flame, but it was hard. The light was very bright in the relative darkness, and the urge to look around only grew stronger as the seconds stretched into minutes. Should we do it again? I could hear the cautious impatience in Cooper's voice. He wasn't trying to be a party pooper, but I could tell he was ready to be through with it. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, 
That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Mia let out a scream. What? What is it? Her candle's flame bobbed in front of me as she shuddered. Something touched my hand. I felt it brush my hand. Heart pounding, I shifted my light and gazed to the gap between her seat and the doors. Her arm was still hanging out. Mia, pull your hand in. She shook her head. No, it's set in the rules you can't pull it in until it's done. You know, until all the lights are out. That was another part of all this. If it worked, you would see the candles outside the car go out one by one. After that... Nobody really said what happened after that. We'd guessed after that you'd either see or hear something spooky or you'd be done. But something touching her? It could be an animal or something. Pull your hand in. Cooper's voice was high and scared sounding, and I understood. I still didn't believe in ghosts or whatever, but there was something wrong here. Something dangerous. And we needed to leave. Outside, the candle on my side of the car went out. I can't! Mia's voice sounded long and strange, somewhere between a shout and a moan as she began to move around more. I can't move it at all. I can feel it touching me. Fuck. This last was from Cooper, and I could see him yanking away from his window violently, his candle turned sideways and dumping a sizzle of melted wax onto the center console. He didn't make it very far, though. I couldn't see clearly, but leaning forward I could make out his arm still hanging out the window like it was pinned there. The candle on his side went out. Something has me too! Oh god, what the- I can't- I glanced back over my shoulder, and I couldn't make out any flame behind the car anymore. I wanted to look further, but I could only wait. My arm was still out the window, too. How was this possible? Why wouldn't I have thought to yank it out once Mia started screaming? She was still screaming now. They both were. At first I thought they were being hurt, but as they quieted down to softer mutterings and moans, I realized they were just terrified. Trapped and terrified, almost out of their minds. I was scared too, but at least nothing had... I let out a gasp as something wet pushed its way between my fingers, running up the length of my palm and then rasping against the web of skin between my middle and ring fingers before exploring the other divisions between thumb and index, ring and pinky. I wanted to scream, but the air seemed frozen in my lungs. I tried looking out the window, but I couldn't see anything now more than before, and I was too scared to try and stick my head out. I just wanted my arm back and to get away from that terrible place. The candle in front of the car went out, and as it did, everything changed. The air grew oddly still. The thing licking my hand was gone. I could pull my arm in again, though I could feel a hardening film on the hand I'd had outside. Shuddering, I wiped it on my pants as I looked at Cooper and Mia. Their hands were back in, too, and they looked as shell-shocked as I felt. 
was terrified to move, to make a sound, but I knew waiting would be a mistake. So, voice low, I leaned up between them and whispered, Let's, let's go, now. I had time to see Cooper and Mia start to frantically nod in unison when Mia suddenly froze. She had been looking at me, but now... Now she was looking past me, as though she saw something in the seat behind me. Blood thundering in my ears, I slowly turned to look back at the seat next to me. Something was sitting next to me now. In the inconsistent light of our candles, it almost looked like a person, though its face had no real features other than two narrow dugout slits that might have been its eyes. The thing's head, its entire body, looked like it was made out of mud, you see. Some thick, dark clay that leaned forward into the light as to give us all a better look. We were transfixed in our terror for a moment, watching the monster as it hooked a thick finger across the lower parts of its head and raked out a new furrow. A detached part of me realized what it was doing. It was making itself a mouth. The thing slung off the excess, striking the back of Cooper's seat with a wet squelch. It then worked its new feature for a moment, as though testing the feel of it, a dark worm of a tongue wriggling free for a moment before disappearing into the moving crack again. When it was satisfied, it spoke to us in a clear, deep voice that sounded both loud and far away as though the creature was speaking to us from the end of a well. Thank you for your invitation. We accept. I had a moment to realize Mia and Cooper's candles had gone out, and then the thing next to me leaned forward further and puffed my own out, plunging us into darkness. In some ways... As strange as it sounds, the dark was a relief. We were trapped in some kind of nightmare, and the less we had to see and endure before we woke up, the better. Because I had to remind myself, none of this was possible, none of this was real. That's when I felt the thing beside me grab my shoulders, even as more hands began touching me from outside the car. I did move then, fighting to get free, to escape the things grasping at me. Even run away from the car, if that's what it took to be free. But it was so strong. They were too strong, because the hands at the windows weren't just hands anymore. Something was crawling through my window, settling its weight onto my back, even as I squealed in fear. I could barely make out the silhouette of more things coming in through the back window. Cooper's window, and when I turned, Mia's as well. They just kept crawling in, wrapping themselves around us, shoving each other for better purchase and position, filling up the car with the flesh that felt slimy and cold and rough. They smelled of old things, sour things, and they made grunting noises as they came, squeezing tighter and tighter as more made their way in from the outer dark. 
I was beyond most thought at this point, though I did have some dim idea that it would be a race between them crushing us to death and our suffocating. I was almost past the point of caring when I realized I could hear something new. It was hard to move at all now, but I managed to turn my head enough to peer through the gap in the front seat. It was Mia I'd heard. She was gagging as one of those things started to crawl inside of her mouth. I yanked my head back violently as I felt something at my own lips, gasping at my jaw firmly and prying it apart with its fingers that tasted like bitter earth. No, this couldn't happen. None of this was real, and this couldn't happen, and... I heard Cooper choking and gagging, too, as the first of them pushed past my mouth and went down my throat. There was no fighting now. No escaping. I just need to hope it would kill me soon. I just needed it to end. We all woke up at sunrise. The inside of the car was filthy, not just with dirt, but our own bodies voiding at some point in the nightmare of it all. We just held each other and wept for a few minutes, too broken to be ashamed, and then we slowly pulled ourselves together enough to clean off as best we could and then make our way back down the road. Mia had to drive us this time. Cooper's hands were trembling too badly, and it took all the concentration I had not to just start screaming and bawling every couple of minutes. She was shaken too, but she still managed to get us to a gas station where we could clean the car and ourselves enough to avoid too many questions other than why we were out all night. As it turned out, we didn't even get into that much trouble. All our parents knew were we were with each other, and that meant even if we broke curfew, we should be safe enough. It wasn't until the next week that we all started aging way too fast. They call it Werner's Syndrome, or Adult Pregaria, and it makes you appear to age very fast. It's extremely rare, and having three cases that are progressing so rapidly, and they all knew each other... We've already had two medical journal articles written about us, and our families keep talking about some kind of lawsuit, though no one can nail down who to sue or why. All that they do know is that something like that couldn't be a coincidence or just congenital. It had to have, as one doctor told us, been influenced by something outside. I'm 19 now, but I look like I'm in my early 70s in most ways except my feet. It's funny, but I guess without a lifetime of walking, my feet are somehow holding up better than the rest of me. Maybe I should be a foot model since school's not really an option. Our parents don't agree, of course. They want to help, but they also want to deny this as a death sentence. They want to pretend that there's no reason we can't live for another 20 or 30 years and with medical advancements even more. They don't want to hear what the doctors are already hinting at. Mia's kidneys are already functioning at about a quarter of what they should be. Cooper is going to need stents put in within the next month or two, and that's assuming a heart attack doesn't kill him first. And that nest of tumors at the base of my spine were only going to grow from here. We get all the problems of old age without all the pesky living that comes with it. Of course, it's none of their fault. 
Our parents love us and want us to live. And the doctors, they don't know what to call it other than something like Werner's, even if they know it doesn't quite fit. Even if we could tell them more, it wouldn't make a difference because it's not something they can understand. They still labor under the assumption I used to make. That the world was sane and could be understood. That there is no magic or evil except in the minds of people. That there's nothing outside looking to get in. Mia thinks it's a thin spot. She says that places with violence and pain and fear, maybe they get eaten by the acid of it all. Makes it easier to see things here, even if it's not really ghosts. Makes it easier for things to see you. Early on, we did try to explain it to them. Once we saw we were getting worse, we panicked, and we were going to tell them everything that happened that night, whether they thought we were crazy or not. We could tell them about how we still feel wrong all the time, still hear voices and have odd thoughts almost every day, something, anything that could help them fix us. But then we realized we couldn't. Literally. The words wouldn't come when we tried to say them or write them. We could talk about it to each other, but no one else. Even when they started crawling out of us again, it was our secret to keep. Because six months ago, I woke up to an arm pushing out of my mouth. It was impossible. All of it was impossible. But as I gagged and choked and cried, something pulled itself out of my body. When it was done, it stood in the moonlight and stared at me with a blank expression, no longer looking like something made of dirt and clay, but now like a naked young man in his twenties. He studied me a moment longer and then went over to the window, sliding it open before crawling out silently into the night. A few minutes later, I got a call from Cooper, and then we called Mia. It had happened to them, too. It happens now like clockwork on every new moon, and the next morning we always look and feel about 10 or 15 years older. They're eating us bit by bit from the inside, and there's nothing we can do about it. Something stops us from fighting it or telling about it, except to each other. I wanted to write this as a warning, but the only way I would write it at all is if it was a letter to Mia. It's funny, at first I couldn't write at all, but once I resolved to hide it away and not give it to anyone else, the words came again. And maybe no one will ever find it. And if they do, I guess that means that we're already gone. If you do find it, please spread it to others if it will let you. Make them understand that this isn't just a story, but something that really happened to us. We didn't understand what we were doing. We didn't know when we made the invitation that there was something out there waiting to answer. I tried talking to them once. I left the light on because I figured it would happen that night and I wanted a better look at what crawled out of me. Looked like a woman in her forties. Birthmark on her back, freckles on her legs. Her hair even looked like she had it cut recently. Just like the rest, she slid off of me and onto the floor, rising to stare at me a moment before leaving for good. This time, however, I spoke to her as she turned toward the window. And for a wonder, she turned back. How are you doing this? Why? 
How many of you are there? How many of you are there in me? For a moment she just stared at me again, but then a terrible smile spread across her lips as she leaned over me. I thought I'd grown numb to all the horror, but my heart still felt close to bursting as she drew close to the side of my bed and whispered in my ear. When she was done, she stood up again, the smile still frozen on her lips below a pair of green dead eyes. Lifting a finger to her lips, she winked at me before turning away and going through the window. As she climbed out of view, I repeated the words she'd spoken, my voice dry and cracked and alien-sounding in my own ears. There's only one of us. <laughs>